Welcome to the National Native Network podcast series. Today we're presenting our webinar archive, Surviving the Journey Through Cervical Cancer, presented on January 26, 2022. To view the webinar video and additional resources, please visit our website, keepitsacred.org, and click the Resources tab and the Webinar Archive tab. Please enjoy our presentation. Hello, my name is Mike Lutt with the National Native Network, a program of the Intertribal Council of Michigan. Welcome to the NNN webinar series on cancer risk reduction in Indian country. This webinar is titled Surviving the Journey Through Cervical Cancer. This technical assistance webinar is being hosted by the National Native Network, which offers technical assistance and resources for commercial tobacco and cancer prevention and control throughout Indian Country and the Indian Health Service Clinical Support Center. Your presenters today are Amanda Youngers, Certified Nurse Midwife at the O8 Health Center, and special guest Amanda Grover, who is a cervical cancer survivor. We're pleased to offer continuing education credits for participants in this webinar. No commercial interest support was used to fund this activity. This activity is designated one contact hour for nurses and physicians. And to obtain a certificate of continuing education, you must be registered for the course, participate in the webinar in its entirety, and submit a completed post-webinar survey. Surveys will be emailed uh, within 24 hours of this of the conclusion of this presentation. At the conclusion of this activity, the healthcare team will, will be able to examine the progress and lifetime risk for cervical, cervical cancer in women with an abnormal pap smear, identify best practices for referral and treatment of cervical cancer, and participate in the experience of one cervical cancer survivor regarding her journey with cervical cancer treatment during the pandemic. If you have any questions, please type your questions into the question box in your Zoom panel. Questions will be answered during the last few minutes of the webinar. And now at this time, I will throw it to Amanda Youngers. Fantastic, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us again on this Wednesday afternoon. Um, my name is Amanda Youngers. I am a certified nurse midwife at the Great Plains Tribal Leaders Health Board working at the Oyate Health Center. And I'm pleased to be here again with you today and really honored to have Amanda Grover um, be with us today to talk about her journey through cervical cancer, especially in the light of the COVID pandemic. So let's open up and just kind of review some of the stuff that we had talked about again with last week. Disclosures, I am a commissioned officer in the United States Public Health Service, and I have no financial disclosures. Amanda is a mother, sister warrior, cervical cancer survivor, and she also has no financial disclosures. So to review the objectives again this afternoon, we're gonna examine the progress and lifetime risk for cervical cancer women, cervical cancer in women 
with an abnormal pap smear. We're going to identify best practices for referral and treatment of cervical cancer. And then we'll talk about um, and participate in the experience of one cervical cancer survivor regarding her journey through cervical cancer treatment during the pandemic. So to open up, I just wanna talk about cervical cancer again across the age spectrum. So with cervical cancer diagnosis, most women are diagnosed between the ages of 35 and 44. The average age for women is age 50, and about 20% of cervical cancers are diagnosed after the age of 65. But there's a caveat to that, is that most women who have been diagnosed after the age of 65 are often diagnosed um, because they haven't had routine cervical cancer screenings up until that point. Um, so for those women who've had routine cervical cancer screenings and have had their three negatives up until that point, it is rare for women to develop cervical cancer if they've had negative screenings um, up until the age of 65. It is rare for women younger than the age of 20 to develop cervical cancer. That's why it's not recommended to do cervical cancer screenings or pap smears on anyone before the age of 21. Fortunately, for many women who've been diagnosed with cervical cancer or precancerous lesions, the five-year survival risk for all women with cervical cancer is 66. Certainly, if we were to stratify that with precancerous lesions versus adenocarcinoma um, and the stages, the earlier it's caught, like every other type of cancer, um, the survival rate goes up quite a bit. Here's looking at cervical cancer changes. So last week we talked about the HPV infection entering the reproductive tract through the cervix and entering that transformation zone in the cervix. And you can see that on the first part of the slide here that the HPV infection goes into the cervix and really can lay dormant for many, many years and um, create a persistent infection. Sometimes that HPV infection for most women will clear within a couple years spontaneously and never go on to cause abnormal changes. It's not until the HPV infection continues to grow up through the cervix again that it creates a persistent infection anywhere between one and 10 years um, before it creates an invasive cervical cancer. Of the women who have cervical cancer, about 30% of them um, will have invasion by 30 years. But you can see that that's a long time from the time you first get infected with an HPV virus until you get invasive cervical cancer. So again, that early diagnosis, early detection and treatment of those precancerous changes. And that's where we're gonna focus our discussion today is on that CIN two to three um, and what do we do with those and how do we treat them? So again, just to review pap smear screening guidelines, again, under the age of 21, no one needs a pap smear. Really, we should be focusing on primary prevention at that time, getting uh, young men and women vaccinated with the HPV series, either their two or three shots. And then once a woman turns 21 to age 30, doing her pap smears every three years, as long as they're normal. We'll talk a little bit more about what to do in certain situations, as well as for those abnormal um, exams. But if they're normal, they only need a pap smear every three years. 
once a woman turns 30, she can have a pap smear every three years or co-testing, which is really the gold standard at this point. Um, and the gold standard for is pap smear and HPV co-testing. And as long as both are negative, she can resume pap smear screenings every five years. And then after the age of 65, as long as she's not immunocompromised, had solid organ transplant, be on dialysis, have HIV, or have an autoimmune disease like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, she can discontinue testing at that time. So really it's all about risk. So when we talk about risk reduction for cervical cancer, it's about deciding when to treat and when to watch. So I know this is a little bit blurry, but you can definitely look at these management guidelines online. Um, ASCCP, that is the clearinghouse for the American uh, Society for Cervical Cancer Prevention and Screening. So they have come up with a consortium of guidelines and basically it's looking at how, what is a woman's risk for developing cervical cancer within those screening timelines? So you can see at the surveillance part, her risk of developing CIN3 or greater um, in a low risk population with a negative HPV is less than 1% um, at five years. So if she has a negative PAP and a negative HPV result, that she can safely return in five years and her risk of developing cervical cancer within that time frame is less than 1% or less than 0.1%, excuse me, so even lower. And similarly for the three-year screening, if she's just getting the cytology, if you're just able to do pap smear screenings at your service site and maybe your lab doesn't offer the co-testing, you can go out to, um, even surveillance at three years, her risk of developing CIN3, which is a precancerous lesion, um, is still 0 0.2 to 0.5%. So still very, very low in that um, surveillance population. For those women who have maybe had had colposcopy, have had a precancerous, maybe a CIN1 or a low-grade squamous intraepithelial lesion, um, her time frame from returning from one year to colposcopy, her immediate risk is 0.6% at five years um, to still less than 4% immediate risk. So really making sure that the women who have had some, maybe some precancerous cells or the CIN1 go into that one year treatment regimen. And then we go into that pink zone, so the colposcopy. So looking at our, our populations who have maybe a low-grade lesion, which would be um, a L-CIL, so L-G-S-I-L, for um, a pap smear, or maybe had a CIN1 on a colposcopy biopsy, their risk is between 4 and 24%. So that's an intermediate risk within five years. So for those women who come in with a low-grade pap smear, getting them into colposcopy is essential to be able to detect those low-grade CIN1 lesions that may be progressing into CIN2 and 3. And then, of course, our treatment zone. So for colposcopy and treatment, there's a moderate to high risk. So if you have a woman with a ASCIS, it's ASC-H, which means cannot rule out a high-grade lesion, 
or somebody who has tested positive for high-risk HPV 16 or 18, we know that those particular groups of HPV are much more likely to progress to um, a CIN3 or an invasive cervical cancer. So getting them into uh, that they have a 50% increased risk of developing CIN3 within five years. So getting those women into colposcopy um, expeditiously so that we can diagnose those lesions sooner is very, um, very, very important. Again, what is ASCUS? So I think that's probably the biggest conundrum that as a practitioner we see. So you get this abnormal pap smear and it says atypical squamous cells of undetermined significance. And the way I explain that to my relatives and to my patients is that, you know, the pathologist looked at your cells and he said, well, they don't look normal. And you can see on this slide that that first upper left-hand corner, those are normal, healthy, plump cells. They're not infected. They don't take up a lot of dye on the microscope. And then B is definitely some uh, ascus. So you can see that maybe the dye is taken up a little bit more under the microscope, but they still have pretty healthy cellular walls, the, you know, they have a lot of cytoplasm, they look healthy. And so they're like, well, the pathologist says, well, they aren't cancer. They don't look, you know, like that right lower hand quadrant where you can see lots and lots of dark, big nuclei and decreased cytoplasm. Um, they don't look cancerous, but they don't look normal either. So that's really where that co-testing or the reflex um, HPV testing comes in. So looking at that, if we can reflex those tests, those ASCUS PAPs to HPV testing, it really helps determine a woman's risk for developing CIN3 or adenocarcinoma in situ. So um, research has shown that the progression of low-risk low squamous intraepithelial lesions and HPV infection, as well as H or ASCUS, so the progression of a ASCUS to a high-grade lesion was found in about 1.6% of patients in a study. And then for low-grade lesions, about 9.6 progressed to a high-grade lesion within three years. Um, the persistence of ASCUS um, was about 58%. So those women continue to have a, you know, a atypical pap smear over three years. And about 30% of those women who had an ASCUS pap regressed over the course of three years. So you can see that not every woman is going to have a persistently abnormal pap, that an ASCUS pap does not mean she is going to get cervical cancer, but that certainly getting women into colposcopy and getting them screened with a more um, diagnostic manner is really, really important. So in the women of, in the study that had low grade into epithelial lesion, about 32% had um, HPV testing done. And then of the HPV testing, about 60% of the women who had a low grade region, lesion were positive for HPV. So of those lesions, about 9% persisted. Um, oh, sorry, in the 9% that had persistent low grade lesions, um, they 64% of them continue to, to have that lesion. And then the, of that 9% that had the low grade lesions, there was a regression finding of about 27%. So 
we're really looking at risk stratification. So for those ASCUS PAPs and those low grade PAPs, yes, we wanna get them in for surveillance, which means colposcopy and for biopsies, but certainly it's not a diagnosis of cervical cancer or even a precancerous lesion at this point. So let me get to the next slide here. There we go. Again, this is looking at the risk management based stratification. So if there is an immediate CIN3, what is the risk? Um, if she has a 4% risk or more of developing a CIN3 in the next three years, that's how women um, are really kind of stratified. So if, if a woman is having a greater than 4% chance of developing cervical cancer or a CIN3 or greater lesion in the next three to five years, it's recommended to do colposcopy. So that's how we kind of risk stratify um, getting women in for treatment. If you don't know, I think that's the biggest thing is like, well, how do I know if somebody needs a colposcopy or where do I go next if I have an abnormal pap smear? I persistently and consistently use this app. It's an app from the ASCCP. It's free on any smartphone and you can also download it on your webpage. So you can go on to the ASCCP website and get the management-based guidelines and algorithm through the, their web portal as long as you uh, sign up for it. So this has the most up-to-date and the guidelines are always changing. So 10 years ago, when I started doing women's health care or 14 years ago, we were papping people before the age of 21 and we were you know, doing colposcopies on 18 year olds and even 21 year olds, we would do leaps on. And now it's really decreased. Our intervention rate has decreased A, because we've had more HPV vaccination. So we're not seeing as many high grade lesions as we were 10 to 14 years ago, but also we know that those early lesions in younger people often regress quicker than if they are 30 and older. So this is a simple navigation menu um, for, for women. So if they chose their management and then you plug in their, if they're HPV positive, um, if it's genotyped, if you know if it's positive for 16 or 18 or 45, it gives you that option their cytology, if they had a low-grade lesion, if they had an ASCIS pap. And then also it takes into consideration their previous screening. So if they've had previous abnormal paps, you can plug this into the algorithm and it gives you a simple, uncomplicated guidance um, on what their risk is. So I often show women this, you know, okay, I've done your pap smear, it's come back as this, here's your risk of developing a precancerous CIN3 lesion within five years. And so it can be really helpful to guide women in risk reduction, as well as really showing them their risks. Question in the um, chat section, is this app bilingual? I don't know. Um, that is a very good question. It very well may be offered in Spanish, but I haven't played with the language settings in it. So, and then it also, gives figures. So there's, we used to have these, you know, charts with algorithms and we have to kind of follow the algorithms down to see what to do for colposcopy and then post colposcopy, how to follow up with that. And now this app really makes it seamless on what their management needs to be and how we need to follow that. It also does have um, 
special situations. So if you have an immunosuppressed patient, if you have a symptomatic patient, if you have a rarely screened patient, um, all of those little algorithms and questions um, come up within the app so you can easily follow, follow women out. And I think it helps me in my discussion with a patient of, okay, this is where we're at. This is your colposcopy results. Here's where we need to go. And they know that I'm just not making it up, that I'm really following evidence-based guidelines. And that I think gets a lot of buy-in for women. So if I'm saying, no, you really need to get this colposcopy. No, I need to refer you for a leap. Um, here's your risk and here's why it can be really helpful. So she said, Nancy Pina said that, yeah, there's a website in Boston and she just created a link for that for cervical risk. Yeah. And there's other apps out there. The app is free. The previous app did have a cost. I think it was $10 for the app, but I think the current ASCCP app is free for users. So um, clinical guidelines, again, these up are updated all the time. This one was updated most recently in 2019, and they rely on individual assessments for risk for precancers for that CIN3. And CIN3, we talk about um, is that that lesion or those abnormal cells progress down at least three quarters of the way through a woman's cervix. And it's not a cancerous lesion. So when a woman has CIN3, she does not have cervical cancer, but she has a greater than 4% chance of that lesion progressing to cancer within the next five years. So really the main goal is to identify women that have that CIN3 or a five-year risk of progressing to cancer. So my client had an abnormal pap smear. What do I do? If you follow your app and it says she needs a colposcopy, refer her. Um, and I think that's the biggest uh, barrier for women is that, you know, how do we get women in for colposcopy? The procedure itself sounds invasive. It sounds scary. Um, and really, so getting women signed up for the breast and cervical cancer screening programs, if they're eligible, if, they're, if a cost is a concern, working with your state department of health or your tribal departments of health to get them signed up for these breast and cervical cancer screening programs that are nationally funded, usually funneled down through departments of health so that these cost concerns don't have to be an issue. Many breast and cervical cancer screening programs like All Women Count or Honorary Woman do pay for the cervical cancer screening as well as further screenings, so for colposcopies and leaps. Um, I like to work with local practitioners that are well known to the community. So if you have a practitioner that's well known in your community um, or that you personally know, I can say, hey, you're going to see my friend or you're going to see my colleague, so and so. And that really creates a trust in your community so that women feel comfortable going to that process. Also, if a woman has had maybe some really irregular screenings or has a high grade lesion, getting her to see a practitioner who may be able to do a leap on the same day, and those are called screen and treats. So if a woman has a high-grade lesion and you're really worried that she might not be able to come back for treatment, for a leap, for cryotherapy, um, some practitioners will still do a screen and treat. So she'll, they'll do the colposcopy. And if they see a high-grade lesion or it's highly suspicious for a CIN3, um, 
they'll counsel that patient about doing a LEAP at the same time. A LEAP is an outpatient procedure, but is also not only diagnostic, but therapeutic. So you get a, a biopsy result with that LEAP by taking off the top third of that cervix. Um, and then that's sent to pathology. So not only are you getting rid of that CIN3 um, margin most of the time, but you can also send that off to pathology and get a firm diagnosis. So if a patient is really non-compliant or has trouble with getting back in for treatment or has a really concerning lesion on her initial pap smear, getting her in for that screen and treat can be really helpful. Um, so in a study that was done, let me scroll ahead, by Dina Swancutt um, and published in the BMC Women's Health Journal, they found that a lot of common emotional reactions occur when a woman is faced with a precancerous lesion or an abnormal pap smear. So certainly having negative connotations, emotional reactions of fear, anxiety, worry, apprehension, and embarrassment. You know, certainly we know that cervical cancer and HPV is caused by a sexually transmitted infection. Where did she get this infection? How is she going to explain this to her family, to her intimate partner? Who gave her this infection? It's really a Pandora's box of emotional response initially in relation to this abnormal pap smear. Again, it's also dealing with reproductive health. Maybe she's worried about her future childbearing. Um, is she gonna have to go through surgery? Is she gonna die from cancer? And then also a lot of women had positive emotional reactions once they were able to get linked into care. So relief, satisfaction that she was able to get the colposcopy done, reassurance that she did not have cancer, and a lot of women noted that they were glad and relaxed by the time they had got linked into services. Um, so getting to those positive connotations for women who have to have colposcopies. Looking at, they looked at in this study, there was a qualitative study and they interviewed over 600 women who had been linked into services that really number one, um, time delays so that the patient doesn't feel rushed that a staff member reached out to her with the abnormal pap smear results, talked her through the procedure and tried to get her linked into services as soon as possible. Certainly having a delay until the appointment time created more concern, apprehension. They were less likely to show up, they had to wait. Um, and also waiting at the clinic for an appointment, long waiting times, feeling like she had to wait there forever. But if they were able to get in, you know, as soon as possible, if a nurse also called her the day before her visit, reassured her, talked her through the procedure, um, that was really important for women in this study. So certainly I've known that if I can get women in as soon as possible and they can get in with somebody that they want to be with, um, certainly their anxiety and their fear and their apprehension um, decrease. Also choices being consulted. Here you're faced with something that you don't have a choice about. You don't have a choice that you've had an admiral pap smear, but giving women control of what they can't control, I think is incredibly important. So I often use a video monitor during my colposcopy. It's mounted on the wall and I give women the choice of whether they want to see their cervix. Sometimes knowing what's going on, seeing their lesions, seeing exactly what's being done 
is helpful. Some women don't want to know that. And so being given the choice to, to, to see their biopsy results and see what's going on can be helpful, can give them control, offering them a choice of gender. So in Pine Ridge, where I worked previously, we had two male OBGYNs and then myself. Um, and so if the patient was uh, scheduled with one of the male OBs and they were really uncomfortable. A lot of times they were given the choice to either get the colposcopy done with me and I would step in and do that. Or if they felt comfortable with the doctor or wanted an OBGYN instead of a nurse midwife, um, giving them that, that staff choice was really important. Also talking to them about the number of women or number of people in the room. You know, we may have a nurse in assisting with us. We might have a medical student or a nurse practitioner student, um, maybe they have a visitor or somebody with them. If they want somebody to hold their hand, absolutely let that person be in there if they're comfortable with that. Um, same thing, if they don't want students, don't let them have a student. You know, if a lot of times when I do a colposcopy, I'll turn their lights down. The only thing that's lit up is my colposcopy machine. I usually put some music on, I use some aromatherapy, really giving them the sense that this is a calm procedure. I never rush my procedures. I usually try and um, schedule them for an hour if I can, um, or I schedule them at the end of the day so that I don't have to rush out and see somebody else. Um, emotional reaction, we talked about that, that the staff, when women had um, a good staff interaction, that they felt acknowledged, that they felt comforted, that they didn't feel judged, um, those were really important considerations for people undergoing colposcopy and then discussion about the results and the appointment value. So telling them, I draw out, okay, this is what CIN1 looks like. This is what CIN2 looks like. This is how far down your abnormal cells go. And as an experienced colposcopy provider, being able to say, you know, this lesion does not look cancerous or it does look cancerous. When I saw Amanda and we did her colposcopy two years ago. I was like, wow, this is, I'm concerned and I'm going to follow up with you. I'm going to call you in a week. I'm going to call you in two weeks. I'm going to call you when we have the test results back. I'm going to make a referral right away and being part of that process so that women feel like they are definitely in control of something that's through the whole journey. So that's about colposcopy. Um, what if it comes back cancer? So this is kind of, we're going to talk with Amanda. She was one of my warriors that we worked with and she had um, cervical cancer and it was just an excellent warrior through the whole thing. And we're going to talk to her about her journey. So Amanda's journey, initially we had a pap smear um, in 2019 and it showed ASCUS with positive high-risk HPV. I think it was positive for 16. Um, and at that point, she was like, well, I just want to kind of wait it out. And I was like, okay, like, I really want you to come in for colposcopy. But we lived in a rural reservation in Pine Ridge. She lived in a community that was 60 miles away as well. So that was difficult for her to come over to Pine Ridge to get the colposcopy. I couldn't do, in my, do it in my outreach clinic, um, trying to convince her to come in for that colposcopy. A year later, she came in and she's like, gosh, I just have to pee all the time. I, you know, I'm having this pressure, I'm having heavy periods. And so we did a repeat pap and it showed a high grade lesion at that point. So that lesion had progressed. 
We got her in for colposcopy and it showed an adenocarcinoma in situ with invasive glandular involvement. So at that point, I said, okay, we got to do something with this. And we sent her off to the gynecological oncologist in Rapid City and uh, got her in for, for treatment and diagnosis. But Amanda, what, what was your journey initially with, with that diagnosis and when we started talking about that? Everything at the beginning was just fast pace. Um, You got me into the doctor right away with Dr. Fredrickson and Rapid. And from that initial appointment, everything was just fast paced. I was there on a Thursday and then Monday they wanted to start my treatments with me. Yeah. So what did they, we, you said that your first, your tumor, and we actually saw your, your tumor on the colposcopy. I remember seeing it like Mm -hmm. they were just big white lesion on your cervix that was kind of protruding and initially it was like the size of a plum wasn't it yep yep so so you got right in and they started you with chemotherapy and radiation right away is that correct yep okay so you got a port put in you got started on your radiation treatments and um you had to travel from martin to rapid city and that's about a two-hour trip so tell me how it was, because we had to navigate contract health. We had to navigate getting all those things approved through through the Indian Health Service because you were uninsured as well. Um, but it seemed to move pretty quick. And then you had to be away from your family. Luckily, you have a sister that lives close by and you were able to stay with her. Yeah. Um, it was hard. Um, just being away from my kids, that was the hardest. Yeah. Um, but it, without my sister, I don't think I could have done it because I could never have afforded to be in rapid five days a week. Cause I had radiation Monday through Friday and then chemo on Mondays. Yeah. That's a lot of, a lot of visits. Um, mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of travel and coordination and you're just not feeling good either. So, um, and then like two weeks into your treatment plan, you got COVID we're in the middle of a pandemic as well. How was yes. that navigating COVID and treatments and? Um, well, I was able to continue with my radiation, but I had to be the last patient of the day. But they had to cancel chemo for two weeks just because of the um, compromised immune system. Yep. But they were still able to do my radiation, which was the most important part at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, what kind of radiation did you have? What what did that consist of? I did six weeks of external radiation. And then um, I had two rounds of brachytherapy, which is really actually four rounds, but I had to stay two nights in the hospital okay. where it's just live radiation straight to the t- tumor. Yeah. So they actually insert a, a probe to radiate that tumor right away. Yeah. Yep. And I remember you calling me a couple weeks into your treatment pr- process and you said that the tumor had shrunk so quickly that your symptoms that you've been having previously with the urinary frequency and you know, incontinence and, and the pelvic pressure and all of that, it's just like, it's like, wow, that was the tumor. We thought, you know, it was just maybe something else. And so uh, noticing those changes right away, I think was really encouraging for all of us. Definitely. 
so here, Amanda was very, um, very, I was fortunate to, that she sent me this picture last night. These are some of the burns. Tell me about your, your symptoms of the internal and external radiation. What was the heart? I think you said that that was the hardest part of just like, um, the hardest part of the internal radiation was I couldn't move it in bed for 24 hours. Right. I had to lay on my back 24 hours straight, which oh. blisters from the external radiation. I didn't really have any symptoms until the last probably two weeks of it. And like, it felt like I constantly had to go to the bathroom, but mm -hmm. it was a radiation burn. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, and then you started after your radiation, then you started right after, I think after Christmas, you started your chemotherapy and, yeah. um, you started just, you shaved your head off because <laughs> you were like, ready I mean, to I, they told oh. me I had 17 to or 14 to 21 days before I started losing my hair. And my biggest fear was losing it in front of my kids or waking up and it being all over my pillow. So my yeah. sister and her boyfriend come down from, um, Custer and we all met at my mom and dad's and had supper. And then with my family there, we just shaved my head. Yeah. Yeah. So nothing like being bald in the middle of winter, but there's a picture of you <laughs> in your last day of radiation. And she had a great Facebook page that her sister and her updated all the time and just really um, marking all of those journeys. So I think your biggest thing, tell me about like how you kept your spirits up and how you were able to say, I'm not going to give in or that I've got this. You remember we talking last night, you said at some point you said, I caught this cancer. I know that this is curable. Yeah. My nephew, he was five at the time, I believe. And when his mom told him and his sister, the news, he just started saying that I had caught the cancer that, so that kind of become a joke between me and my family. And yeah, it's just, if, since my family seemed okay with the whole idea of me having cancer after I was able to kind of make jokes about it. Cause the best thing to do is stay positive through it all. Yep. Absolutely. You did. You stayed so positive, even though you had to be away from your kids every all week, um, for, for a long time, especially over the holidays. I think that was really hard. So Yep. And then you started your chemotherapy and you lost all your hair and you, you posted one day, you're like, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, how long did that last your hair loss and, and that sort of thing? Um, I, my last chemo was March 15th, I believe. And it actually started growing back about a month later. Yep. Yeah. And there you are March 15th. With your, yep. with your sister, isn't it? <laughs> it is my sister. Yeah. So you just were so, you know, resilient through the whole process, but I think it's really hard. How would you, if you had another woman that was facing a cervical cancer journey like this, what would you um, tell her? What would you encourage her how to, how to manage it? Um, probably just try to stay as positive as possible. It's a scary thing, but being positive is the best way to get through it. Yeah. And have as much support as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So after you got your um, cancer treatment done, you actually went back, your, 
your oncologist recommended that you got the HPV vaccine because at this point you had cleared the virus, you'd cleared the cancer, your body was a blank slate and you did go ahead and get those HPV vaccines and you got your COVID vaccine. I remember we were trying to like figure out where to get all of those vaccines. <laughs> yeah. So, and I remember um, how do you, you talked about getting your, your son vaccinated as well. How was that conversation for you? Um, he is not old enough yet. He will be 11 in March. Um, but when I got my daughter vaccinated, she had had her first HPV vaccine. Um, and then around that time is when we found out that I had caught cancer. Mm-hmm. And I explained to her that the shot she was given was going to prevent her from getting the kind of cancer that I had. Yep. And my son was there when we had that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's really important that, you know, we have a vaccine to prevent cancer now. And a lot of times people are like, well, I don't want to talk about an STD. Yet we give babies the hepatitis B vaccine um, at birth. And we're not talking to those newborns about that the HPV or the hepatitis B, vac- hepatitis B virus can cause liver cancer. That's primarily why we give the hep B vaccine. And yet um, it's also to prevent liver cancer. And so I think it's like these are cancer prevention vaccines and um, looking at it that way and not like not throwing in your sexual preference or your story or just like your concerns about a teenager being sexually active that we know that 80 to 90% of sexually active people in the world will get HPV at some point in their lifetime. It is incredibly common. Unfortunately, there are some types that cause cancer. And so I think framing it as a cancer prevention is incredibly helpful because that is the most important message. So, all right, hang on here. There we go. So you put this one day, you said, I was freaked out, scared, uncertain, and determined to beat this. And I think that's just the most important message that like going through a colposcopy, I think I've seen so many women who've put it off or been concerned. And in the time of COVID too, we've all discussed, you know, like as mothers, we're, we're taking care of our kids. We're taking care of our parents. We're taking care of our relatives. We're homeschooling our kids. And a lot of times we aren't taking care of ourselves. So I want to applaud you for, you know, even in the middle of all of this pandemic and uncertainty that you were able to be determined to beat this and take care of yourself. So really, as we go forward in caring for women, that we um, make them a priority and, and honor them. So I think that's so important is that when I have a mom come in for her pap smear, I'm, I'm honoring you. This is your time. Like, thank you for taking care of yourself because we know that we can't have healthy children. We can't have healthy um, families if we don't have healthy moms and healthy women. So really making sure that we link them into care and then walking them forward in a way that we can get them to, excuse me, get them into colposcopy. So I have lost patients in the last year with cervical cancer, some older than Amanda, some younger than Amanda. And I just want to say thank you to all of those women who have fought hard, who've been too scared to go in, who've put themselves, everyone else's health or lives first, who don't have insurance or access to get care, 
who didn't think they needed pap smears, who didn't have symptoms, who didn't have a provider they could trust, and who just didn't know where to go. I honor you. So thank you, Amanda, for sharing your story. I know you've just been such an incredible um, patient to work with, friend to work with, and an example that you've just been so amazing in your journey. And you've been cancer-free. You tell us, tell us your most current update. Um, I was back at the doctor last week and everything looked, looked good. And I was supposed to go back every three months. So April would be um, three months for my last visit. But since everything was good, I don't have to go back until May. And then I'll have a follow-up CT scan then. Awesome. So. so Great. Thank you so much for everybody for joining us today. I know we've cut out a little short. We definitely have some time for questions and um discussion. I have a couple of questions in the, in the chat session here. One says, can you remind me of the aromatherapy patches that you mentioned last week? Yep. So those are called Eloquil and I'll type it in Eloquil um, Aromatabs. If you just type in Aromatabs, they, uh, they are um, highly available on Medline and McKesson and I've used a bunch of them this week on even patients just going through colposcopies and endometrial biopsies. And the minute I put it on uh, my relatives, they just like, oh, that feels so much better. So I think using aromatherapy, giving women choices is very, very helpful in helping people process this. Another question is, is 26 the max age range for the HPV to be effective? Or how old can a person be to receive the vaccine and where is it still effective? Yes, um, so 26 used to be the max range for HPV vaccine. However, the um, American Society for Immunization Council and the CDC now say that you can get your HPV vaccines up to the age of 45. And we know that women don't just have one sexual partner. You don't get married when you're 20 necessarily and have that same partner until you're, you know, until you pass away. And so a woman may have a single partner early in age and then may get divorced or may have another partner later in life or may have multiple partners. And so certainly protecting them through the lifespan up until age 45 is highly um highly effective, especially now that we have the Gardasil 9, which is nine valent um, protection. So you're definitely, even if she was exposed to one or two types of HPV, there are still other types that she could be protected to. Does she need screening prior to the vaccine? No. Even if she's had a positive HPV um, test, even if she's had an abnormal colposcopy or a pap smear, um, there you don't need to have a negative test prior to giving that vaccine. So if she between the ages of 26 and 45, it's definitely an optional vaccine. It's one of those risk benefit things, but talking to your woman, if she has a new sexual partner, if she's in a new relationship, if she's had an abnormal pap smear in the past, going ahead and starting those series up into the age of 45 is really, really important. So one question is having a leap one-time thing or is it a reoccurring thing like caps? No, it's usually a one-time thing. So a leap is an electric 
loop of wire that's run through the cervix. Um, and it usually removes the top third of the cervix. And then that piece of tissue, it's cauterized automatically because of the electric loop. So that piece of tissue can then be sent off to pathology. So you have a diagnostic specimen to say, okay, is this a CIN3? Is this an invasive cancer? Um, if it's a CIN3 or two, and they um, have clean margins, so the margins of that excision don't have any cancerous cells, then it's usually a one-time thing. And they can go on to have surveillance with repeat PAPs. Um, certainly she could have another abnormal PAP, but most women at that point only need the one leap for diagnostic and treatment of a CIN3 or below. If she has a um, CIN or more than a CIN3, like a adenocarcinoma, the, that patient should be um, sent to a gynecological oncologist or somebody that specializes in cervical cancer to discuss whether she needs a cone biopsy or further treatment like Amanda. So Dr. Peter Wright wrote, um, are there barriers that should be addressed with to increase access to HPV vaccines and routine pelvic exams, especially in patients having symptoms? Absolutely. So, you know, if a patient has had a pap smear three years ago and it was negative, but she's having symptoms now, there's no reason to not do a pap smear. Um, certainly a lot of insurances may not pay for that, but I think if you have a symptomatic response and you are saying, you know, postcoital bleeding or, um, friable cervix, or you actually see a lesion when you're doing her speculum exam, putting that into your notes so that it can be billed appropriately, um, and working with your cervical cancer and breast cancer screening programs to make sure that that, um, exam can be billed for and that that patient can get captured. So um, HPV vaccines, yeah, there are insurance costs. Um, certainly that's why getting women in and men in for their HPV vaccines before the age of 18, because then most, at least American Indian patients can qualify for the free vaccines for children um, through their Department of Health. And so they can get three free vaccines for all vaccines, but especially for HPV paid for. The barrier is that a lot of insurances won't pay for it. Now, I think most insurances do pay for it up to the age of 26 because it's recommended. Um, however, between that age 26 and 45, that's a good question. I don't know, maybe Dr. Peter Wright has some other options and, and but I think working with patients insurance programs or through the Department of Health to get them linked into services for vaccines would be very, very important for primary prevention. Hey, so, Mandy. Yes. Can I just throw out there, if any providers have patients that are around my age that did not have the HPV vaccine, um, to push them to get it now, because when it, I, when vaccine, when that vaccine was out, I was already on my own. Yep. They didn't have it when I was 11 years old. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of us that are in our early forties that weren't eligible for the vaccines when they first came out. So that is a discussion that we need to kind of reopen for patients. Um, certainly for American Indian patients, if you're seeing them through a tribal 
facility or an Indian Health Service, even if they fall into that 26 to 45 age group, we should be able to provide those vaccines free of charge to patients if they're coming through those tribal agencies. So working with your pharmacy committees to making sure that those that access is available for them. All right. Awesome. Yeah, we still have about nine minutes left. So if anybody still has any questions, they can type them into the Q&A box. Um, we'll just remind folks that we are going to send out a link to an evaluation. Um, certificates are available for uh, participating in this webinar. So within the next 24 hours, we will be sending out a link to SurveyMonkey um, in order to just kind of get some feedback on how we did today, along with um, being able to offer your certificates for participating in today's webinar. We do have one presentation scheduled coming up on March 30th on smoke-free tribal housing policies. If folks want to learn more about that, visit keepitsacred.itcmi.org slash events. Uh, check out March 30th, and then you can find more details there to register for the presentation. Um, yeah, I don't see too much more in there for- There's just one more question. Is there one in the chat. That's okay, thanks. Yep. Um, so is there anesthetic during leap procedure that would seem like a barrier, if not absolutely. Yeah. So um, during the leap, they do a cervical block. So they usually put lidocaine or marcaine into the cervix prior to that um, procedure. It's usually done as an outpatient procedure. So that makes it very helpful for women who are at risk of poor compliance or difficulty getting in for follow-up care, um, offering them, you know, if they have a high-grade lesion with a CIN3, you can definitely um, go in and have that leak done. And they do a cervical block. So, gosh, darn it, Dr. Peter Wright. <laughs> he was Amanda's radiation oncologist as well. Is that correct, Amanda? And he wants to join this. Yes. But he's another excellent uh, resource. So we might yeah, have unfortunate, Yeah, unfortunately, if you're an attendee, it's uh, uh, set up where everybody's muted. Yeah. So sorry about that, Doc. That's okay. Next time we're gonna have to pull you in, Dr. Peter Wright. So. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, so they do anesthesia yeah, yeah. on that. And then if there's any additional questions, um, Amanda's uh, contact info is on the screen right now. Um, but with that, I think that we're pretty much out of questions. Oh, wait, there's one more right there. Okay, does every facility do biopsies different? Um, so the colposcopy procedure is a pretty standardized procedure. Um, some people do it with like an old binocular lens, um, coposcope. I do mine with a digital camera coposcope so that I can have the screen so I can show patients what their biopsies look like and where I'm examining if they want to. I have found for me, that's very helpful teaching. Um, for some people, they don't want to do that. They've learned with the old fashioned coposcope and they proceed that way. But the biopsies themselves are pretty much done the same way with a tincture, little um, colposcopy biopsy and with acetic acid, which is vinegar. So most facilities would do the biopsies the same way. 
um, basically your preference as far as colposcope and how you, you relate to patients. <laughs> I think everybody has a different bedside manner. So that's the most important thing is finding a practitioner that you are comfortable referring your patients to so that they, um, that they do their procedures in a way that the patient feels most comfortable. All right. Well, with that, I think that the questions are winding down. Um, so again, we're gonna send out an evaluation in the next 24 hours. So keep an eye on your emails for that. We'll go ahead and get that sent out for everybody. And with that, we will go ahead and um, wish everybody a happy rest of the day. Great. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you. To view the full webinar video and additional resources, please visit our website, keepitsacred.org, and click the Resources tab and the Webinar Archive tab. Thank you for listening to this Webinar Archive presentation from the National Native Network.